0: All right. And one more thing, Podcast Faithful. We've got an excellent encore episode for you this week. What some might call a rerun. That's right. Featuring, among other things, Mark Marin breaking the space-time continuum. Mm-hmm. Where else are you going to hear that? But first, <laughs> we want to talk to you about an idea that we're pretty excited
1: about. Yes. We want to help you be the smartest, most engaging person at your parties, which is why we make a show every week full of surprising stories, music playlists, and history trivia you can share
0: And we think there's another kind of more tangible way we can fulfill that mission. That's right. We're teaming up with Quarterly. That is a box subscription service to create one-of-a-kind boxes of curated stuff that would be sent directly to you four times a year. Imagine a box magically appearing on your doorstep
1: full of items handpicked by us that will help make your party a success like a compilation of great new music, tasty recipes, maybe a piece of barware, lots of other surprising things,
0: all united around the theme. Yeah, so like a box for your holiday party, a box for summertime picnics, A box for that going away party you're going to throw when the upstairs neighbor who throws parties at four in the morning moves out. Yeah, a party
1: which you'll throw at four in the morning Mm -hmm. the night before he moves without inviting him. Oh, sweet revenge. Yes, party boxes for all sorts of happy occasions. Yay. Really, though, the coolest part of this is that subscribing to the box directly supports our show. Mm -hmm. And instead of us thanking you with a standard public radio coffee mug or tote bag, not that we have anything wrong with those things. No, they're nice. We'd be giving you the equivalent of like four tote bags loaded with exclusive items
0: you'd actually. Want. You see how nice that is. But it won't happen without you. So if you want these boxes to become a reality, go to dinnerpartydownload.org slash quarterly, or you can find a quick link on our homepage. We just need to hear from a few hundred more people, and this is our last week to do so. So please do head to our homepage and tell us if you dig the idea. And you can even make suggestions for what you would like to receive in a box. Note we are still working on ways to mail a martini.
1: Yeah, the hard part's keeping the olives from disintegrating in the gin. It's so
0: terrible. Maybe suggest some other things for the moment. Yes. Thanks to everyone who's already chimed in. We look forward to hearing from the rest of you. And now here's your icebreaker. What about powdered martini? <laughs>
2: there's this old guy. He's sitting field side at the Super Bowl by himself and there's an empty seat next to him. And some guy behind him says, why is there an empty seat? Why don't, you, why don't you sell that seat? You could have made a lot of money. The old guy's like, that's where my wife usually sits, and she's passed away. And, and then the guy goes, well, why don't, don't you have any friends that could have gone with you to the, to the game? And the old guy goes, they're all at the funeral. I'm Rico
1: Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nuneman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download a culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties.
0: You just got a joke from comic Mark Maron. That'll help break the ice. A new season of his TV show, Marin, just launched. He'll come by later to offer time travel advice. We're not lying there. And yep. if all that sounds familiar, that's because
1: this is an encore broadcast of a show that first aired two summers ago. So cast your mind back to a time before the current presidential campaign. There was such a time. We know you may have forgotten <laughs> yep. about it. And back then, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Sadie Stein. She is a contributing editor at the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
3: I thought we could talk about sadvertising.
1: Hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Sadvertising? These are like Craigslist ads for lonely people?
3: (laughs) Not even – well, I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl this year, but – and this is something which was recently chronicled in an article in the magazine Fast Company. You may have noticed a certain kind of heart-rending commercial.
0: Yeah, um, that's true.
3: There was the one about the friendship between the horse and the dog. <laughs> oh,
0: I remember oh, yeah. that. The Budweiser act.
3: There were returning veterans. We are in an era of heart-wrenching, emotional ads. That's
0: kind of the opposite of what I you know, typically think of for advertising. They have wanted to make us laugh.
3: Well, for many years, that was a trend. But now a few factors, it seems, have come together. First of all, it works. Apparently, if you are emotionally open and you let your guard down because you're watching a sad story or something moving about, for instance, these Swiffer commercials about about various families <laughs> learning and cleaning together. Oh, my
4: God. <laughs> then
3: you are more receptive to the product and to spending money and you'll have positive associations with the product. And uh, from the perspective of people in advertising, it's an interesting creative challenge because, in essence, they're doing these little films which have kind of a story arc.
1: They're, they're actually stealing public radio's bread and butter. They're doing, like, these <laughs> This American Life stories, but it's for yeah. the Swiffer. Except
3: they're making money. <laughs> yeah. So.
1: Why didn't we think of that? <laughs> we had it
0: right in our hands. We just didn't monetize well, it. Well,
1: we're not allowed to advertise as a nonprofit. You know, we just have to do sad underwriting. <laughs> Sunderwriting. <laughs>
3: Sadie
0: Stein, thank you very much for the small talk.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: And now time for a happy little cocktail.
1: This is where we tell you a true tale from history, then have a bartender capture
0: its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our increasingly semi-famous history lesson with booze.
1: First, the history. Back in 1892, the most notorious punch bowl in North America was purchased.
0: Here is Michelle Philippi with the play-by-play.
5: Sometimes one of the top prizes in sports gets no respect. It all began in 1886, when British politician Lord Frederick Stanley arrived in the colony of Canada. His job? To represent Queen Victoria as Canada's governor general. Stanley and his family loved the Great White North, especially Canadians' favorite sport, something called ice hockey. But the game was still in its infancy. The best team in a given year didn't even get a trophy. So Stanley decided to fix that. In March 1892, he bought a silver punch bowl for the 19th century equivalent of a thousand bucks, engraved it with the words, from Stanley of Preston. And voila, the Stanley Cup. Stanley donated it with one big condition, that no team actually own it. A team that won it one year had to hand it over to the next year's winners and so on. Which may be why some teams don't bother to take particularly good care of it. In 1909, the winning team kicked the cup into a canal and left it there overnight while they partied. Fifteen years later, another team's players forgot it by the side of the road after fixing a tire. At one point, it was lent to a photographer whose mom used it as a pot for her plants. And more recently, players have taken it to strip clubs, tossed it into swimming pools, and let their babies sit and uh, do other things in it. Lord Stanley never had to witness the abuses his cup endured. A few months after he bought it, his brother, a British Earl, died. And Stanley had to sail back home to take his place. He never saw a single Stanley Cup championship.
0: So that's the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. I'm speaking with Brian Grant. He is bar manager at Poor House Restaurant in Vancouver, very near a park named after Lord Stanley. Brian, what cocktail did that history inspire you to make?
6: It's called uh, Stanley's Lament. Um, the lament part comes from uh, Lord Stanley. Never even got to see a real final plate. That's right. Um, so there's
0: no ice in this, basically, I guess would be the, the main way to symbolize that.
6: No ice, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's a, it's a up cocktail. That's right.
0: All right. What is in this thing?
6: My, my cocktail consists of, I did an ounce of uh, Canadian straight rye whiskey. Of course. Um, a quarter of an ounce of Benedictine. All right. A quarter of an ounce of Fernet Branca. Wow, and a little bit of Angus syrup bitters, and that gets stirred together, and then put into a, a coupe or a cup, as we know the Stanley Cup, uh, it tops <laughs> off with champagne, which is kind of uh, festive, and that's what you get to drink out of it when you win the uh, the Stanley Cup. There, so oh, that's
0: right. All the players get to drink champagne out of it, right after, like right there on the ice after they win.
6: Exactly. Yeah, but uh, also there's a little dash of maple syrup in there just to balance it out as well. Of course, uh, can, Canadian cocktail without maple syrup in a big cliche, but there you are.
0: <laughs> sure. Do, do you put some French fries and gravy in there too? Just to make it super Canadian?
6: No poutine. <laughs> yeah, you can eat that with it, though. I think it'd probably be a good side dish. That's a good Canadian way to go. But uh...
0: but should, do you serve this? I mean, it seems to me that the most important part of this drink is going to be the cup. Do you have, like, a special silver cup to serve this thing in?
6: Well, yeah, I think that yeah, I was going to say, you know, if you happen to have a ornate silver cup, just lying around the house, that'd probably be a pretty good vessel to serve this in. If not, I think a regular cocktail coupe would do nicely. That's fine.
0: And just when you're done, just toss it aside and don't give a damn about it.
6: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just fling it off the balcony or something or into a pool.
0: And Brendan, we, of course, presented that history this week because we're in the middle of Stanley Cup playoffs right now. Yes. And uh, I hope after hearing that that the winning team maybe pauses before they decide to chug champagne out of that cup.
1: That's right. (laughs) They might want to get a rabies shot or something
0: (laughs) before that happens. At least zinc lozenges, you guys. But people, if you've got a clean cup, we have cocktail recipes you can put in it. They're all at dinnerpartydownload.org. org. And now, The Guest List, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things.
1: And today our guest is writer and cartoonist Mimi Pond. She wrote the first ever episode of The Simpsons, and she's regularly contributed cartoons to the Los Angeles Times and elsewhere. Her new book is a graphic memoir chronicling her bohemian past. Here she is to tell us about it and her list.
7: My name is Mimi Pond. My book is Over Easy. It's a graphic novel that is about my navigation of the moral swamp of the late 1970s in Oakland, California, where I worked as a waitress in a, possibly the only restaurant I ever could have worked in. It was a very bohemian existence, given that the manager of the restaurant was a um, Latin scholar-slash-poet who ran the place as though he was casting his own anarchic punk opera. You got the job by either telling a joke or a dream. That's how you got hired. What bohemia means to me is, and sort of the bohemian mindset, is very much about risk-taking. People who conform to society, they wind up making all kinds of sacrifices in order to stay safe. Bohemianism is about taking risks and navigating some very unsafe territories at times. So here's three representations of bohemia that mean a lot to me. Number one would be the movie Something Wild with Melanie Griffith and Jeff Daniels.
5: There's an island in bay. Lord, Lord, amor. I think it's from
7: 1985. It's about a crazy bohemian girl who um, seduces a New York City yuppie banker played by Jeff Daniels and kind of drags him into this crime spree involving her uh, violent ex-boyfriend. All the
8: people
7: one of the scenes that really stands out to me is the scene where uh, Melanie Griffith basically kidnaps Jeff Daniels and takes him to a like one of those really seedy motel rooms, handcuffs him to the bed, and forces him to call his boss and tell him that he's going to take the day off.
1: Yeah, I
8: put it No! Good afternoon, Charles office.
3: Charlie
8: there, please. I can take a message from Mr. Drake's.
3: No, this is a matter of considerable urgency. Please
1: connect me to his superior.
7: I think what spoke to me when I saw that film was the sense of, like, why would you ever want to be a banker and be in that yuppie world? I I remember um, before I met my husband, I uh, expressed to a friend that I was tired of dating artists and weirdos, and so she set me up with a date with some guy from Wall Street and I was just like could not wait to get away from him. (laughs) It was really like oh, that's not it. And number two on my list is just a little ridiculous but it, it also speaks about how in the 1960s there were many many references being made to beatniks and bohemianism Uh, mostly they were being made fun of and there's no more finer example than an episode of the beverly hillbillies which is called cool school is out and in this episode mr drysdale the banker who handles the money of the clampett family he, he allows some beatniks to turn a room in the basement of the bank into a coffee house but jed Clampett's actually paying the rent on the place they call jed big daddy and Jed's uh, son and, and niece flocked to become beatniks. It's
2: real groovy, Granny. Well, already today I learned that I'm one of the angry young men.
7: How about that?
6: What you angry about?
2: Oh, we got questions to ask about life, like uh, who am I and where'd I come from and, and where am I going? Them is angry young man questions. <laughs>
3: Now you're going to get some angry old woman answers. <laughs> you
7: know, I was a child watching this when I, I first saw it, but, you know, watching it on YouTube, it struck me as hilarious because they're making fun of bohemians who are actually very pretentious. So, you know, in some ways that does ring true. You know, there certainly is that aspect of hanging around artists and hearing artists talk complete BS about art. My third example is a, I think, completely bohemian tome, and that is Harriet the Spy, which is a great classic work of children's literature. It's about an 11-year-old girl who spies on people and takes notes. She aspires to be a writer when she grows up, and her dramatic arc is all about staying true to herself and her Mm -hmm. observations, but learning how to navigate the world successfully. I can't overstate the importance of Harriet the Spy on my growth as an artist. It may be the only female character from children's literature that specifically articulated that desire to observe the world, and was marching to her own drummer, which I think is what being a Bohemian is all about.
0: The guest list from Mimi Pond her new graphic memoir, Over Easy, is out now.
1: All right, coming up, we trick comedian Mark Marin into answering your etiquette questions. Wait a
0: minute, what what is this show? <laughs> we ask ourselves that all the time. True. All this and more when the dinner party download continues.
1: Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend
0: conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We should let you know this is an encore broadcast of an episode we aired a couple of summers ago. It's a great one. Coming up, you'll hear us offer French wirewalker Philippe Petit free drinks. What do you mean free drinks? I want free lunches, free dinners. Which is just the sort of behavior we address in our etiquette segment, which starts now.
1: Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And for this show, we pose them to stand up comic Mark Marin. Yes. His hugely popular podcast, WTF, is one of the better celebrity interview shows in the world. <laughs> and he portrays himself in the aptly titled series, Marin. The wow. new season started recently on IFC. Rico welcomed him like this.
2: And Mark, it is an honor to have you. Thank you. Uh, there are going to be questions. Is that what you guys do here? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're going to ask you listener questions. We've Wait, got d- questions. For I you. think I was sent some prep. I didn't prep. Is that going to be a problem here? No, not at
0: all. Not if you can think on your
2: feet. Yeah. Do you think on your feet, or are you? A, what is everything written for you normally? What? <laughs> <Not, laughs> huh? Oh no! <laughs> <I> thought, <laughs>
0: this whole segment's going south. I thought.
2: Wait a minute. What? What is this show? <laughs> I was told oh, it would be God. a profile of me, and right out of the gate, I'm knocked down to number two. This segment's because only mildly pornographic. Your reputation won't be too damaged. Um, okay, you guys. I, I'm happy to be part of your project. Well, thank, well, thank you. you. Yeah. So... I don't mean that to be condescending. I'm just very proud of you guys <laughs> for making this work. You've been All there right. from the beginning, Mark. Thanks yeah, for your help. It. Don't want to be condescending, but I, I really enjoy whatever this is. Well,
1: we're honored that you could fill in at the last minute yeah. for our <laughs> other guests. So thank you. I'm oh, glad really? this worked
2: out. You know what? I got to go. I got. I just got a call. Anyway.
0: So no. your, your show is fictional, but it's also obviously semi-autobiographical. You play a comedian with a hit podcast, weirdly, who often talks about his own life on the air. And this is actually kind of the crux of the first episode this season, when your girlfriend tells you never to talk about her publicly. And we actually have a clip where you discuss this problem
2: with fellow comedian Sarah Silverman. Exactly. I'm, I, I'm having like the same problem with my girlfriend right now. There's a moratorium on jokes. And it seems like you figured out a way to, to balance it out.
3: It's not balanced at all. It's yeah. totally unbalanced. Uh-huh. The joke is more important than the relationship, and that's why we're all going to die sad and alone. <sighs>
0: <laughs> then you're not you're not overstating this issue for comic effect. I listen to the latest WTF. You really do talk at some length about, for instance, these ongoing problems you're having with your dad.
2: Yeah. So for- why the need to air these things publicly? Yeah. I, I've been very cagey about that. I'm talking in broad terms recently. I do not go into depth about the problem. Oh, maybe I do with my dad, but uh, not with the women. <laughs> I've I've gotten a little more diplomatic about that. Oh, I see. I don't have to learn that lesson too many more times. <laughs> So this is the
0: old you Uh, that we're representing on your TV show. I
2: can do an impression of the old me if you'd like to have that guy on the show. No, we like new you. uh, It's always very close to the surface, old me. Willing to get into trouble. But is the joke more important than the relationship to you? Uh, Well, I I mean, you weigh this stuff out. If you do the type of comedy that I do, this has gone on my entire life it it really is a incident by incident situation my father took offense to things that i don't necessarily think he should have taken offense to he made it about himself you know my life involved him and but the the real problem is is that whenever you talk about somebody else it's still your point of view yeah. on the situation yeah. and they don't get a rebuttal yeah yeah now my father's issue uh you, you know it's <laughs> there's an ongoing negotiation with it he'll be fine but in that
1: instance it sounds like you've figured out a way to live with it but in, in other terms with new relationships is that something you ever struggle with at all
2: yeah I mean a lot of times it, I've been known in my life when I go on the road I'll talk about relationships and I'll say to the audience look I, I'm going to talk about this but none of you can tweet about it or, or make any calls
0: and they really respect that request they don't
2: spread your these intimate revelations all over social media sure because they think it's a bit but it's not <laughs> you know sometimes I got to work some stuff out I'm not supposed to be talking about it but I can't help myself and I'll give them a heads up and yeah. wow. we usually do You are right. You meet your therapy deductible, and then you just work it out on stage. (laughs) I don't necessarily know that I like uh, comedy being framed as therapy. I don't think that's really what it is. I think that my problems are entertaining to the people that find it entertaining. Mm -hmm. Does that help me? No. Arguably, it keeps me in the same spot, psychologically.
1: Do you feel like it helps others? What about your audience? Yeah, Yeah, I definitely
2: think it helps people. I mean, I think that my ability to work through stuff and to lighten it by making it public makes people feel less alone. It also relieves them a little bit. It gets them out of themselves. I I, I wouldn't say that I'm essentially here to help, but I'm glad that I do help. All right, well, you're definitely here today to help the audience with their questions. Are you ready for these? you ready to go? I think so. Oh. And the framework here is this is a dinner party situation. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, we told them that you were coming. Yeah. We, we asked them to submit their etiquette questions for Mark Mara. Etiquette questions. Yeah.
2: From all
0: realms of life. What yes. I would do. Your advice. Okay. All right. Shoot. Here's something from Roger in New York City. And Roger writes, I was riding a super empty subway car. I found this cozy spot up near the door. Then somebody stood right next to me and boxed me in. Personal space is such a luxury here, and now I'm all up in this guy's armpit. Seriously, what gives? What do I do? Move to another city, <laughs> <laughs> but that
2: is—that's ridiculous. He's on an empty subway car. That guy chose his spot to stand next to him in an empty subway. car. That's the right. I dream. didn't. I, I'm sorry. I didn't. I, I wasn't paying attention. I was no good at story problems. So, <laughs> the story problem is: I'm on an empty subway car. <laughs> A guy literally sits on my lap. <laughs> yeah. Creepily. <laughs> yeah. uh, what? What do I do? Yeah. Yes. leave you get up i mean what what, what territory you fight is it that cozy if it's empty i think there's other seats for you so in, unless you have some sort of paralyzing anxiety or you're attracted to this person i think the appropriate thing for your own safety and self-esteem i might add is to say excuse me and maybe shoot some stink eye that guy's way but the, but you're like you could be under threat though i mean what if that's you're... projected come on oh, really well, yeah okay. well i mean the threat is some weirdo just got in your face. What, are you just supposed to sit there and take it like well, some sort of doormat person?
0: I think that's probably true. Although I had <laughs> a true. weird situation in a movie theater where somebody actually asked, in an empty movie theater, is that seat taken right next to me? <laughs> so what would you end up doing? Was it fun? Yeah, how'd it, it go? It, it yeah. was creepy. By the way, this was a press screening, too. This is like a professional <laughs> <laughs> film critic.
1: And they've been married for seven years now. Oh, <laughs> <That's amazing>.
2: Congratulations.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's so nice. All right. I think, I think you get the gist, uh, Roger. You know, you get leave, out of move to a different city, just get out of there. All right, this next question comes from you Lauren. Can <laughs> you can also cry.
0: You can try to outweird the guy. No one wants to be around a black cloud, All right. even a weirdo. This next question
1: comes from Lauren in Venice, California. Lauren writes, how do you deal with begging cats
0: at
2: the dinner table?
0: Perfect question for you, a, a notorious cat fan.
2: My cats are uh, are pretty polite. Okay. Uh, they, I, and, I, and also, I don't eat at dinner at any regular time. <laughs> and I don't eat it at the table. Uh, generally... <laughs> My cats will only beg for a couple of things uh, chicken and ice cream. And well, I'm not sure well. that the ice cream is really good for them, but I'll let them lick a bowl if it's not chocolate because I'm not sure which animal chocolate kills. Is it dogs or cats?
1: Well, we don't know. I don't know either. Are your I cats still
2: alive? I will give them chicken. I will buy chicken for my cats so they have their own dinner table. They don't need to beg. <laughs> I buy wow. separate chicken. From my cats. I learned that from my wow. mother. So you don't
1: think it's a problem though? Like what if you brought someone else over for dinner and now the cats are used to- They're not
2: dogs. What are they going to do? I mean, let's say get on the table and get their hair and stuff. My cats are not like that. Okay. They're very skittish. So look, I grew up in a house full of animals and I'm just talking about my parents. But I grew <laughs> up with a bunch of dogs and they were all fed at all times and there was no manners around it. It just depends what kind of- do you want to make a begging monster out of your cat? Well, she she's- wanna... It what? sounds
0: like Lauren's got that problem. Like they are begging. So how does she get them to stop? Too
2: late, Lauren, too late. <laughs> yeah. You're just going to have to live with the monster you created because apparently it didn't pull back until you know there was no policy in place. That's right. And now what have you got? A pathetic begging feline. <laughs> live with it. That is,
0: there's Mark Maron's there you advice, go, Lauren. Lauren.
1: Or Venice, it's nice you could eat outside and leave them inside.
0: You there can you figure are. out
2: something. That's right. Move. <laughs> you should move to another place for dinner. And don't tell your cat. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be a lot of the, <laughs> there's a All lot right. of moving involved in your advice. It's the easiest thing to do yeah
1: so we have another question uh this is a more serious question this one comes from tim in boston and we asked this to you because you do address serious issues on wtf um my parents turned me into an addict but it's made my life incomparably richer with regard to
2: anecdotes hate them (sighs) or love them his parents he's asking hate them or love them yeah yeah Well, I think at some point, and I can't say that I have got this mastered, you're going to have to let your parents off the hook and take responsibility for who you are. Again, coming from me, meaningless. (laughs) But (laughs) I I think that your framing of it that because of the challenges in your life, because of the childhood you have had, has made for an interesting life is a fine way to frame that. I think that if you do that with empathy, there's probably no way you can hate your parents. Hmm. And I think that if you do have active hate, hate's a heavy word, even active anger, you might be uh, crippling yourself emotionally. Hmm. So I would try to let go of the anger and frame it all in the wow, these are some great stories that I'm in jail again. You know, that kind of thing. To try to keep... Lean into the anecdotes. (laughs) Lean into the anecdotes is like, this is an amazing life I have because I have no control over myself. But after a certain point, you know, you deal with the addiction. You know, you can't continue acting out of addiction because you're like uh, screw you dad yes I just, yeah. you know you, you can do that with a lot more venom when you're sober
3: mm. yeah
1: <laughs> you have more strength and more focus exactly alright yeah. so sober up so, first
2: and then try to love I, I'm glad you got that out of that alright <laughs> and this this from
1: the man who said comedy couldn't provide therapy absolutely
2: right. but see I think that my issue with the way you did it was I was doing therapy that it's therapeutic for you like I have, right. a, I have a weird historical problem with like you're not really doing comedy it's just therapy for you. It's like, no, I worked hard on that therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I say, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that, that was well honed. It's not just, it's just you not... whining randomly yeah, on stage. I, that's what yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's just not therapy. Yeah. It's an act. It's like saying Richard Lewis is in therapy, which he would say, but that's his act. Yeah. All right. So here's a final
0: question. This is from Ron in Tucson, Arizona. And this is a lengthy one, so listen up. He writes, I invented a time machine to travel back in time and kill Hitler. When I got there, I was distracted by a bird, and in that brief moment, Hitler stole my time machine and traveled forward in time to kill all the people who wanted to travel back in time to kill him. I am so embarrassed, I left the keys right in the ignition. It had time machine" stenciled right on it. The question is, should I invent another time machine to go back in time and kill myself before I invent the first time machine that I went back in time with to kill Hitler?
2: Well... In my first reaction, is given all the time he spent conceiving this, he, he's probably not far from suicide anyway. Um, yeah, and I think I, I I have a strong sense that if Hitler showed up, yeah, you know, without any support, perhaps dressed the way he usually dressed, that he would have a hard time moving through society, killing people. Yeah, he and would, he'd have to ask a lot of questions, and yeah. eventually someone would say. You know Hitler's back, and <laughs> people would just be on him. And yeah, and I think that would get a lot of press attention. He's like the only person named Adolf in the world right now. Right. Yeah, wearing the, wearing those weird pants that are puffed out <laughs> sure. on the sides. With the...
1: For a moment, I wanted to build a time machine to go back in time before we asked you that question. <laughs> yeah, but you handled it beautifully. Really, so. thank goodness. We <laughs> didn't know how it was going to go.
2: Mark Marin it's really
0: been a pleasure having you. Thanks for telling our audience how to behave. We're done. Comedian Mark Maron, the new season of his TV show, Maron, launched last week. And folks, if you're in need of time travel advice, or even if you're having trouble with something real, tell us about your dilemma and we'll have someone excellent deal with it. Go to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact.
5: And now, time to eavesdrop.
1: Cowie Hart-Hemmings' first novel, The Descendants, was adapted into the Oscar-winning film starring George Clooney. This week, her second book comes out about trouble and another paradise. Today, we overhear an excerpt.
9: Hi, I'm Cowie Hart-Hemmings, and my novel is The Possibilities. This novel is set in Breckenridge, Colorado, a place I love and lived. It's a place where I met my husband, who was working as a dishwasher, and I was working in a snowboard shop. I got to know a lot of people there and wanted to capture the life of a true local. And so after I was inspired by the place, I found a character, Sarah St. John, a TV anchor, a single mother, who's just experienced a devastating loss. And here's how the novel begins. I pretend that I'm not from here. I'm a woman from Idaho on vacation with friends. I'm a newlywed from Indiana, an unremarkable guest at the Village Hotel, exploring Breckenridge, Colorado, waiting for a valet to bring her rented car around. A black Escalade blasting music enters the roundabout. The car is huge, and I expect someone huge to go with it, but out come three young boys. And the valet, also a young boy, wordlessly takes the driver's keys, hands him a ticket, and nods his head. My son, Cully, who used to work here as a valet just three months ago, told me that he hated to park cars for people his age, and I can see why. Growing up, I'd feel the same thing, an embarrassment to work in front of friends and peers. The worst job I had was fitting ski boots for girls who came here on spring break from places like Florida and Texas. They were always saying, it hurts, and I would say that it's supposed to, making the boots tighter. The valet uniforms are black slacks and a black fleece, something Cully was embarrassed to wear. Some of them wear black change purses around their waists. Cully would rather lose money. I envision him running and opening car doors, taking tips, not looking at the amount until they were gone. You pretend not to care. I look at these boys all around, the same age as my son, and an embarrassing urge comes over me to hold them Something Cully, as a child, always wanted me to do and I'd often get annoyed. You're a big boy. You can walk. I should go. I have ten more minutes before I need to get to work. Today will be my first day back on camera after a three-month absence. I don't move. I look at one of the valets, the tall one, with black hair, smooth like a helmet. I look at him like he's a kind of god. Please give me strength. Strength to return to get back to life. Cully is dead. He died in an avalanche. That's why I left work. Good reason, though I don't really have a good one for coming back, for emerging from hibernation. Another car pulls in, and a different boy runs to the driver's side. This kid is thin, average height, He opens the door for a man my age wearing a tight white turtleneck that sparkles in the light. He asks the boy if he knows how to drive this kind of car, a red Porsche. Yes, sir, he says. I'm familiar with automatics. I smirk. The man looks doubtful, hesitant to leave. When he finally walks toward the lobby entrance, patting his pocket for the keys he left in the ignition, the valet pantomimes kicking him in the ass. Then he catches sight of me. I smile in on the joke. Cully would have done the same thing, I bet. He would be like this guy. This is the better valet. He looks at me, smiles. I smile back, trying to communicate that I heard what he said to that guy. I got it. I know you. I'm a different sort of adult. I had a kid just like you. You have your ticket, he asks, in that same cold, dismissive voice he used with the man. I pat my pockets, I, I, I think I'll walk. I hurry away, as if caught doing something perverse. I look back to see him, worried he's kicking his foot toward my ass, but he's opening a door for a woman, a real guest. She's perfect, this woman. Beautiful, poised, groomed. Sometimes another woman's polished nails are enough to make you feel like a failure. The woman doesn't look at him as she gets out of the white car and adjusts her long, light green coat. I would have looked at you, I want to tell him.
0: Cowie Hart Hemmings reading from her novel The Possibilities. It's in bookstores everywhere.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, man-on-wire Philippe Petit makes beauty from chaos when The Dinner Party Download continues.
0: Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of Public Radio. I'm Rico Galliano.
1: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we chat with Philippe Petit, the man who in 1974 walked between the twin towers on a wire... He's written a new book. Yeah, slightly easier feat. Uh, A little bit. But first, it's time for the main course,
0: the part of the show where we talk about food. Indeed. And Brendan, it is rare that a food substance makes headlines online and in major magazines. Like the KFC Double Down. Exactly. That sexy cover story. (laughs) Sure, but this is almost the opposite kind of food. This week, a product called Soylent captured people's imaginations. It's a powder Mm. and an oil that you mix with water and its supporters say you can live on that and some additional water for weeks and weeks at a time. Hmm.
1: Is the first ingredient snake oil by any chance? (laughs) It is
0: apparently not. Uh, In a New Yorker article this week, the creator says Soylent has been 90% of his diet for a year and a half, so we asked the company's business VP, David Renteln, to bring some to our studio. But first, I had to ask him about the name Soylent, which, of course, most folks associate with the 70s sci-fi film Soylent Green.
4: Yes. Yeah, so in the movie with Charlton Heston, Soylent is made of people, but our product actually contains absolutely no people.
0: <laughs> I'm happy to hear it.
4: <laughs> Tell me what is in this stuff. What is? What are the ingredients? There are a lot of ingredients. The largest percentage is uh, oat flour, maltodextrin, canola oil, uh, rice protein.
0: First of all, who came up with those particular ingredients and in whatever proportion you have them in?
4: It took a lot of product iteration. Rob, our CEO, came up with the original formula, and he lived on it for 30 days. And so that's sort of where this, this all began. Sure.
0: But I mean, where did he come up with it? I mean, did he just kind of test out every possible combination
4: of <laughs> <laughs> nutritional supplement until he came up with one he could live off? So there are a lot of studies that show what ideal nutrient proportions are. Part of what Rob did initially was sift through all of these studies and come up with the closest consensus to what would be most healthy, which we then confirmed with our medical advisor, Dr. Pissanier, who's the head of human nutrition at Columbia.
0: So you get this stuff. It's uh, it's a powder and an oil, and you mix those with a, a certain ratio of water. Yes, And that is the proportion that everyone gets. It seems to me that everybody has different nutritional needs. Some people are iron deficient. Some people want to eat, you know, just naturally will eat a little more of something because their body kind of demands it. Is this really
4: a one-size-fits-all substance? It's as close as one-size-fits-all can get. As far as, you know, iron deficiency or wanting to eat more, it it has a, a ton of iron in it from added vitamins as well as natural iron in the rice protein. And as far as eating more, you can always... Mix up a, another bag of soil, and it's one calorie per milliliter. We, one of our co-founders, John, is six eight, and so he needs about <laughs> thirty five hundred calories per day. Uh, sometimes when he's very active. So, are there side effects?
0: I had read somewhere that there was, you know, gas was an was an issue for some people.
4: That can be an issue for some people, and it was especially an issue in early iterations of the product when okay. high quantities of sulfur were involved, and. <laughs> That was quickly uh, addressed. I can
0: imagine. That's what beta testing is for.
4: It is. There, that was a bug in the product.
0: Uh, how many times a day do you, well, let me ask you, how many times a day do you drink? Are you subsisting on this entirely?
4: Not entirely. It takes up the bulk of my meals. I, I do breakfast and I do lunch pretty much every day, especially weekdays. I find it very easy to wake up in the morning, mix up a pitcher of Soylent. I don't have to worry about what's for lunch or what I'm going to get. I don't have to leave my desk if I don't want to. It's a problem that's just solved.
0: But I guess that's what gets me is this idea of stopping to eat food as a problem that needs to be solved. You know, I understand that sometimes it's an inconvenience, but there's now, like your CEO, there's a whole subculture of people who are now want to subsist on this for long periods of time. That I don't know why, but it feels worrisome to me. It seems like I think about the movie Brazil, where they're at a fine restaurant and everybody's ordering variations on a this kind of lifeless paste. It's almost like the <laughs> definition of a totalitarian society.
4: Is the goal here really to kind of eradicate the need for food? it's we we've heard that concern before, and it's not so much as as us wanting to replace food as much as. Wanting to replace a staple meal and make food more convenient, then you can replace meals that you don't enjoy. You know, I, I don't know what that might be for for you. Oh, there's no meals I don't enjoy, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, well, well, for me, you know, junk food is uh, something that I try to get away from. And I find oh, right. Soylent is very useful in helping me avoid that. But I still very much enjoy going out to, you know, a nice restaurant where there's a, a dish that is almost more of an art than, mm-hmm. than a meal that I would need to subsist. You mentioned, you know, um, trying to get away from junk food, something that'll satisfy you instead of junk food. Is it satisfying?
0: Yes, absolutely. Incredibly satisfying. Even though it doesn't have any chew to it? I know that we did an interview uh, recently with a guy who did a certain kind of cleanse, Uh and he found that after a week he was really yearning to chew something.
4: (laughs) (laughs) We have heard that that some people do miss the urge to chew, and and we recommend that they chew gum. But... You know, we don't recommend that you chew and consume unhealthy calories just to satisfy a sort of mechanical urge. All right, let me let me taste some of this. Sure, okay. So we brought you some here. It's in a two-liter pitcher here. And it's kind of beige. It I is guess. beige. And we purposely designed it to be very neutral. Uh, both, Colored, you mean? Uh, more for taste and texture. If this is something that you're going to have for a large percentage of your meals, you would get tired of something that has a very extreme texture or taste. So it's going to be somewhat bland, I guess you mean by neutral. Yes, but I prefer deliciously neutral. (laughs) 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 And uh, an advantage there is that you can customize it by blending it up with berries or peanut butter and everybody has their own sort of take on that.
0: Okay. Although when, when you start doing that, you're kind of missing the point, it seems like. Well,
4: since it's so amenable to customization in terms of taste, you wouldn't actually have to blend very many berries for instance Hmm. Uh, so the nutrition really wouldn't change very much
0: all right and initially smelling it it smells a little bit like protein powders that i've you know had after a workout or something like that sure sure okay here we go it is very neutral it's not unpleasant at all it has a kind of graininess on my tongue kind of the consistency of uh, watery cake batter. It's, the flavors may be a little nutty. I can imagine, you know, drinking a lot of this, but do you know people that have lived on this entirely other than your CEO? Uh,
4: yeah. A number of our customers have ordered large amounts and, and stated to us their intention to live on it for long periods of time. What,
0: what kind of people are those <laughs> that
4: my question, who, in your
0: experience, wants to just eradicate the pleasures of food from their life forever?
4: So we have a very, uh, very colorful community and... We, you know, we have people who are chained to their desk some days and and can't get away or, or don't want to for the sake of efficiency. We have other people who really want to use this for something like a, a camping experience, for mm-hmm. instance. Then you can see how it actually be very energetically efficient to carry a, a lot of powder with you.
0: True, although you cannot roast this over a campfire, <laughs> alas. Brendan, we should note there are many questions about subsisting on Soylent. Like, for instance... I bet. Yes. Like, for instance, there are some compounds in food which the body doesn't necessarily need to function and which aren't in Soylent, but those compounds may help ward off diseases in the long run. So Ah. the jury's out. Also, it's beige paste. (laughs) It's a tasty beige paste, in fairness.
1: It's time for chattering class. This is the part of the show where an expert schools us on a dinner party worthy topic. Today our subject is creativity and our expert is French high wire artist Philippe Petit. In 1974, he walked into the history books via a wire strung between the twin towers of the World Trade Center that feat became the subject of the Academy Award winning documentary Man on Wire. Philippe continues to do wire walking around the world, and he has written several books, the latest of which comes out next week. It's called Creativity, the Perfect Crime. It's a book about the creative process. Philippe, for a man whose art requires such precision, you spend an awful lot of time talking about chaos in this book, and
8: that seems kind of counterintuitive. If you welcome chaos, chaos is going to organize itself for you in front of your own eyes.
1: How is that so?
8: Well, try it embark upon a project and welcome all the ideas from the outside and from the inside. You'll get a beautiful, chaotic mess in front of you Mm. and then give it some time. Time will organize it. And of course, you will be an accomplice in that organization. So I always welcome chaos knowing it will come with a little bit of help from me uh, to a nice uh, ordained uh, structure.
1: Chaos, which you'd point out is the Greek word for chasm, a wide-open mouth.
8: Yes, yes. Since I am a Frenchman, I always refer to the senses and the taste and the culinary tongue is always there lurking in the shadow. So, yes, the taste of, you know, the mouth wide open, uh, engulfing all the knowledge that the world has to offer, chewing all this information and then spitting out the essence. Yes, that's that's very French of ours.
1: You, you actually use that metaphor um, in, in another part of the book. After the kind of chaos and as it starts to Take shape. You spend some time talking about some of the threats to kind of creativity, and you all, you talk about um, how uh, lethargy lurks.
8: I love you. I love you to pick to pick that up because uh, yes, uh, lethargy is a, is a green tongue monster,s uh, really lurking. And, <laughs> yes, uh, that's right. You have. I'm, I'm not talking about body language only. I'm talking about also the profound uh, spirit of things. You know, it's so easy for an artist or just for the art of living artist to fall into a comfortable system where things works and serve you, well, that where the danger lurks. You should be on the edge of your seat every day of your life. You should be surprising yourself. You should be learning a few rules to be able to break the rules. And my book is a, you know, it's an invitation to do all that.
1: So I can imagine some listeners thinking, okay, invite chaos, buck this system. You know, this sounds well and good. But this is coming from a guy who scaled the World Trade Center and walked across it on a wire. You are an extraordinary person. How do you, how do you know these principles will work for other people? I mean, what do you think about nature versus nurture when it comes to creativity?
8: <laughs> oh, <laughs> I have a very strong thought about that. I do not believe at all in uh, pre-made system. I don't believe that you're born with ten amazing fingers that will lead you to be the best violinist in the world. I believe that as long as you have those ten fingers ready to serve you, passion should be your motto. And let's take the uh, example of the violin. If you're passionate about the violin, what are you going to do? You're going to use your ten fingers in manipulating this more marvellous instrument day and night. And you are going to forget to sleep and to eat and to rest. And, and and therefore, you're going to do it, you know, all day long. And if you play the violin all day long, you are going to become the best violinist in the world. We all have that passion dormant in us, but many of us had forgotten that. So maybe my book will help in mm. opening doors, saying, look, you have that passion in you. Awaken it and run for your dreams and erase the word impossible from your vocabulary. Well, what would
1: you say to people who say passion's great, but Passion doesn't pay the rent. I would, I would say, uh,
8: I would say, leave your apartment, grab a tent, and you don't need to pay the rent. <laughs>
1: Can you practice violin in a tent?
8: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> life is short, and you have almost to make a decision. Do you want to enjoy life? Do you want to create your own life, or do you want to curve your shoulder? Do you want to, um, how do you say, glide your shoes and look at the floor and follow? You know. Follow the people. I think you have to grab life to realize it's an amazing short experience and make the best of it and, and have fun and laugh and cry and create. We, we need to remember that we are uh, amazing animals, but all our senses are being dulled by our 21st century with little uh, texting and blueberry and raspberry and boysenberries. And uh, we are forgetting to be human animals. So, we need to smell, we need to bite, we need to look, we need to observe, we need to prey on, and my last word will be creativity.
1: Well, I feel so inspired right now that I'm going to run out of this studio and go write a novel and open a restaurant.
8: Yes, make sure the restaurant carries the title Funambule in homage to your guest. Funambule is a French word for walker. I will. Free drinks for you at Wirewalker anytime. What do you mean free drinks? I want free lunches, free dinners, lifetime. Well,
1: I'm breaking the rules that you're imposing on me. So we'll maybe somewhere in the middle we can arrive at the answer. Uh, Philippe Petit, thank you so much for uh, coming by our program.
8: Thank you very much.
1: Philippe Petit. His new book is called Creativity, the Perfect Crime. And Rico, you may have noticed Philippe gets very passionate. A little. Yeah. And a lot of people find his words inspiring. I
0: can imagine. In
1: fact, when the interview was over, our engineer left the studio (laughs) and never returned.
0: (laughs) He just pursued his dreams. I think
1: if you climb Kilimanjaro, you'll find him there naked.
0: Playing lute.
1: Alright, it's been a while since we opened our mailbag, and while we'd love to imagine it overflowing with letters thanking us for enlightening you with astounding factoids, exposing you to wonderful new music, and enticing you to try new foods, mostly you tell us about all the mistakes we made.
0: Yeah, like for instance this one. A few weeks back, we relayed a fact from filmmaker Jim Jarmusch. He said the first vampire with fangs didn't appear on film until the 1957 Mexican horror movie El Vampiro. One listener begged to differ.
3: Hi, this is Emily from Princeton. I just wanted to point out that Murnau's 1922 Nosferatu definitely had fangs.
0: Emily, you're right, kind of. Uh, Nosferatu did have sharp teeth in the front of his mouth, though, frankly, they were more like sharp buck teeth than fangs. Uh, And we should note another contender for first fanged vampire from 1953 was the Turkish film Dracula in Istanbul.
1: Anyway, Emily, fangs for the correction. Oh, no. It was right there. I had to take it. (laughs) So a few weeks ago, I visited a cafe in San Francisco and sank my teeth into some high-end toast. (sighs) And it cost a whopping $4. Yeah, I remember. Nellie in Minneapolis wasn't bothered by that high price tag so much as by something else she heard in that segment.
3: I love your show, but could I suggest that you don't have so many chewing and slurping noises on there? I have this condition called misophonia, which is just a hatred of some noises, um, most commonly eating noises. The New York Times actually wrote an article about it. So it's a real condition, and it's a real thing that other
9: people suffer from.
1: That's misophonia Nellie says she suffers from. Mm. Sorry you have to deal with that, Nellie, and we'll try to minimize your pain. Uh, the good news is that if we all start eating Soylent, no <laughs> chewing ever again.
0: That's true. Solved. Yeah, done. Uh, but nothing got our listeners talking as much as an etiquette segment with comedian Annabelle Gerwich. A listener named Bowtie Aficionado wrote in asking how to get his friends to give up pre-tied bow ties for the real thing. Annabelle had this to say.
5: I think it's interesting that Bowtie Aficionado has managed to time travel from the past into the future (laughs) because I didn't even know people knew how to tie bow ties. Okay, Bowtie Aficionado, man, get a life.
6: Hi, this is Michael
0: Kisslinger from Ukiah, California. I was distressed to find that you had recruited an etiquette expert who did not have enough sense to realize that bow ties were once again cool. Many of my 18-year-old son's friends have asked me at one time or another to show them how to tie a bow tie. I just hope that in the future, the Dinner Party download will use as a new minimum
4: standard for your etiquette experts that they at least know the difference between a foreign hand and a Windsor knot.
0: Bowtie Nation, we hear you. We're sorry. We're raising the white flag of surrender. Sadly, it came pre tied to the flagpole. Sure did. And that concludes our encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download for this week, folks. But don't despair subscribe to our podcast and you can listen to all our shows for the price of free and get podcast only bonus episodes. One of those is coming up this week actually. You'll find us on iTunes.
1: Jackson Musker produces the show. Nina Potok is our associate producer and Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Our interns are Carla Javier and Christian Coons. Engineering help came from Bill Lance and Corey Schreppel and Larissa Anderson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. Bon Bon appétit.